Hello and welcome to the Training for Influence podcast, Series 4. We believe that expert, tailored, engaging and values-led training has the ability to transform lives. And we think it's an absolute privilege to facilitate the learning of frontline professionals. So this series is dedicated to sharing stories and tips from experienced and inspirational trainers. Its aim is to encourage and support people who are facilitating training to deliver their very best every time. So it's my absolute pleasure to welcome Mel to our podcast today. Thanks so much for coming along, Mel. Thank you. No, no, I feel absolutely honoured to be uh, invited. I'm very thrilled. Oh, well, Mel, you're here because, um, well, we've kind of known each other for about 15 years, but actually only just reconnected recently because you're now delivering training, aren't you? Yes. Well, I've delivered training for a long time. I've delivered training for over 20 years now, but I've finally sort of set up my own training Um, I always used to do a bit of training myself, but I tended to do training for other organisations. But now I'm setting up my own company as such. So, uh, yeah, still all on the same subjects, but my way, if you know what I mean, and uh, not somebody else's way. Absolutely. And what's really interesting is when we met 15 years ago, we met when I was a manager within homeless services and you were you were there giving the legal advice and doing the appeals, weren't you? Yes, and I still am. So, uh, yes, I'm still there. They contract me out now to most of the rest of North Yorkshire. So they contract me out to most of the other North Yorkshire authorities. But I only agreed to do that on the basis that any money that they got for contracting me out goes into the Homeless Prevention Fund. So and all the fees that they get for me doing other people's reviews actually goes into City of York's Homeless Prevention Fund for homeless people. That oh, was that's deal. fantastic. That, that was the Otherwise, I wouldn't have done it. So I said no. But now, <laughs> you see, but, but so I do most of the others as well. So it's quite, uh, keeps me busy. It's exactly why you're here today, really, because we're going to talk a little bit about your training and how you deliver your training. But we're also going to talk about your why, why it's important to you, why you've chosen this subject. And really, you know, actually, this subject you're an absolute expert in. 15 years ago, as I know, you were there on the front line doing the appeals, giving the advice, and you're still doing that. But you're also training others to make those decisions effectively and make informed evidence-based decisions as well. So there's no wonder I've invited you here to talk about being an expert and the importance of really having that understanding and that operational expertise when you deliver training. Would you mind just starting off by telling our listeners then just a little bit of your backstory and a little bit about Mel Kant's training and and what you're doing now? Yeah, no, no. Basically, I started off, I was working for, I was working for a firm of solicitors doing contentious stuff and they persuaded me to go and do my law degree because I was training their article clerks, as they were called then, their trainee solicitors. And they said, well, this is ridiculous. You need to go and train. So I went to train. But then in the middle of it, I had my son. So I had to move jobs because there was no flexibility there. I couldn't do police station work at three o'clock in the morning with an 18 month old child. It's just not practical. So I moved to working and I got a job in a local authority in the housing service as a homeless officer. And so I worked there. And I got my degree and they released me for a year to go and do my bar final. And I trained and I qualified as a barrister, which was brilliant. And I was thrilled to bits. I got fantastic qualification. I got really good results. I was really, really, really excited. But then I'm going, but actually, I've got a two year old. How practical is this? You know, and no disrespect, but in that day and age, 25 year old woman with a two year old child and single young man with I didn't stand a chance, basically. But I didn't want a chance because I decided that I didn't I wanted to stay doing what I did. I wanted to stay in social. But then I had this wonderful skill that I understood the law. I could read the law, but ultimately I could also apply the law and I could show people how to apply the law, if you see what I mean. So I carried on working the front line and I've done all sorts of things. I've worked in all aspects of social housing. And by doing that, I also then developed this ability to train people on this. So I now train people and have trained people for over 15 years on any aspect of social housing law. So my passion is in homelessness, but I do homelessness. I do allocations of housing management, antisocial behaviour, disrepair, 
asset management, leasehold, possession proceedings, you name it. Because to me, social housing is holistic. The whole service, there's a life cycle of a tenancy. And everyone need, who works in housing isn't just a rent officer. They need to know that if they evict someone, then that's going to have an impact on a homeless officer because they're going to have to take a homeless claim. But we're all still part of the same circle. So I became very passionate about that and wanted to make sure that that was taken across. So I worked for, through all of this time, I've worked for City of York Council doing reviews and all the others, but that was part-time. But I also did some consultancy work and I did training for several bodies. I've done some consultancy work for the Charleston Institute of Housing. I've also done training for people like Housing Quality Network in terms of housing law training on all of those different subjects. And I've also, in the last three years, I've been an advisor for the Local Government Association on homelessness, which is amazing, on homelessness projects. And I've been very honoured to do that. And I've helped several local authorities across the country, which has been really, really good. But then you've done, I was going to say, I think you've (laughs) done an amazing job of highlighting really obviously why I invited you here as an expert today (laughs) because you do you know you talk about your history and kind of the path you've walked and the different elements of housing and how they connect together but actually one of the things that you've not really highlighted but I certainly benefited from 15 years ago is your ability to bridge that gap between the legislation and the legislative language and interpretation Mm. and actually the the impact on individuals lives do you know you can bridge that gap you can change that language and bring it alive and I think you know you did a brilliant job there of kind of I was sat back going wow all of these things that Mel's done all of these lives she's touched all of these decisions that she's made but actually what's great is that you come very much from that perspective of valuing the end person you know the vulnerable person the service user absolutely and bridging that gap is really quite powerful I, I love it. One of my favourite, I mean, I'd say the face-to-face training has disappeared, obviously, at the minute. But one of my favourite courses I used to do was disrepair of all things, believe it or not. I used to love going into um, organisations and you could see you'd have the repairs staff, the asset management team, all the surveyors and the insurance officers and everyone all sitting around the table. And they'd all be going, oh, God, why are we here? Why are we here for this training? Oh, she's, got, she's a lawyer. So she's just going to berate us about, you know, you're not doing this and you're not doing that. And this is wrong and that's wrong and everything else. And we, we're just doing our best. And so this is just going to be awful. And the first question would be, are we getting a break today? How long are we going to get for what time are we going to be finished? Those were the first questions. <laughs> and uh, I would just sit at the back and go, okay. And they said, well, are there no packs or anything like that? And I'd say, oh no, there's just a little quiz. We're going to do a little quiz first, see what you know. And then that would steer me about how I'm going to take this training, you know, through the course of the day. All right. Okay. Don't do it on your own. You can do it together. And we're asking the questions going, well, I don't know the answer to that. Do you know the answer to that? And then by the end of that quiz, we only need 20 minutes for lunch and we could go on till half past four if you like um, <laughs> at the end of the day. And, I, and do you know what? That used to make me sing. That makes me sing. I loved it because the light bulbs were going ping, ping, ping. I'm not here to give you a hard time. I'm here to help you. The law says you've got to do this. And yes, we're not perfect and we get things wrong and we miss appointments and we do that. And we just put hands up and we go, we're really sorry. Here we go. Have some compensation. What we don't put up with is, you know, people, they were and are still bamboozled by claim firms, you know, who are just, well, they're on a fishing expedition, which then is difficult for officers because they're not dealing with genuine cases, if you see what I mean. So they're mithered by that all the time. But they just thought I was going to come in and say, well, as the lawyer, you know, we have to make compensation. We have to work out how much it's worth and da, da, da. I said, I, I, I'm not your legal team. Your legal team will do that. I'm the bit in the middle. So you've got it. Does it really need to go to your legal team? If it doesn't need to go to your legal team, get rid of it. If it does need to go to your legal team, then they will take it on and they will deal with it. But you need to understand and have the confidence to know whether you're going to tell this claim firm to do one or whether you're actually going to take it forward. And that was when I was thinking about these things for today, I was thinking that's one of my favourite light bulb moments. I love it when people, they just all sit there for a start going, oh, flipping it. It's not even a solicitor they've put in front of us. Well, what a barrister into have a go at us today, <laughs> you know, and I just laugh because I think to myself, you've got no idea what's coming. No idea whatsoever. Why do you think it's so powerful, though? Because you're talking there about really kind of meeting them where they're at rather than going in with your own agenda. 
Why do you think that's so powerful? I think it's because I've experienced it, because I've had these letters come in and I've had to go through these letters and I've had to fend off these claims. So I know the sort of things that people are coming in with. And I'm not a surveyor, but I can see it from their level. I can see it from the fact that it's frustrating. I can see it from the fact that there isn't anything on the system. Nobody's reported anything. So, you know, why is all the stops being pulled out to do this? You know, just relating to that course. So because I've experienced it, because I've worked in the sector for such a long time, you know, and sometimes that makes you, sometimes that can make you stale. And I certainly am not perfect by any stretch of the imagination because nobody is. But as I say to them, nobody's perfect. We do make mistakes. But what we do need to have is a confidence to go, no, I don't think that's right. Or to say, oh, Mrs. Smith, we're so sorry. We completely forgot about that. We didn't get it done. We must give you some compensation, blah, blah, blah. Because, you know, and just taking that step back and saying, we're really sorry, putting our hands up. But um, yeah, I still love it. I still love that. And that's what I do it for. That's the light bulb moment. The ability to make a difference to somebody else that I've won. In an ideal world, you'd love to change social housing the way it's delivered forever. I ain't never going to do that. And I'm one person. But if what I do gives someone the confidence to make a decision that changes somebody else's situation, whether that be a tenant, an officer or whatever, and an applicant, I've won. That's me. That's like you've just uh, read my mind, Mel, because my next question was going to be, why do you do what you do? And why have you set up Mel Can't Training? And you've gone straight in, you know, I know obviously I wanted to talk to you about expert, but actually everything that you talk about embodies our methodology because you've just answered the why question with the exact values led element. Do you know how important it is that actually as the trainer, you're clearly doing it for a bigger reason than just because you want to deliver training. So tell us a little bit about your why and why you set up Mel Can't Training and, and I guess why you focus on this area. Yes. Well, it's funny. So I was saying somebody else asked me about my why the other day, yesterday, actually. And I was talking to a lady. I was in a group, a conversation with some women, amazing women. And one of the women in that group, she had been homeless. And she said in 2019, she'd become homeless through no fault of her own. She's a bad relationship and bits and pieces. And she approached the local authority and she was assisted and she was provided with accommodation. She now feels safe. She now is secure. She knows that she's going to be able to, as long as she pays her rent and everything, she'll be able to stay there for the rest of her day. So she knows she's safe. And she said to me when I said, oh, what I did, she said, I want to send a letter to somebody to say thank you. Do I send it to the local authority or do I send it to the provider? I said, no. I said, if it were me, I would send it to the officer that you actually went in to see that day and the officer that picked you up and the officer that took you through the process and who helped you out the other side. I said, send it to them. I said, because that letter will reaffirm, either reaffirm or establish their why. Why do I do what I do? I do what I do because this person, it made a difference to this person's life and this person's now safe and they're now happy. And it took me back to, well, 25 years ago, best part of 25 years ago, the first letter I received from someone to say thank you. And that letter was my why. Because this person, I had World War Three with oh, every statutory agency, even with the housing management team of my own local authority who were going, we are not housing this person. We are not doing this. We are not doing that. And I put my head above the parapet and said, no, we can't put this person in this particular accommodation because they won't survive, because they will be drawn into drugs and alcohol because they're too naive. They need this stability somewhere else. They need, I won't go into details, but needless to say, if this person is going to thrive, this person has to go here. And they said, there'll be carnage because it was predominantly an old people's complex, perceived as not, it was lots of older people living there. And to put a young person there was really brave, etc. And I just stuck my neck out and said, no. I think that person needs to go there. And so that's where they went and they thrived and they succeeded. I was and... waiting for, I was literally waiting with bated <laughs> breath with goosebumps going, yeah. please tell me that then they it succeeded. Is. They succeeded. This girl, she wanted to learn oh. to play the trumpet. She went off, she plays in an orchestra now. Oh, yeah. Oh, so this and girl, this... but she had nothing. She had no one. She had absolutely no one. She had no family. She had no support. She had nothing. And she'd got apparently, allegedly, psychosis, but community mental health services had lost track of her for several years by the looks of things. And everything was just up against it. She was just a bad lot, apparently. And I stuck my head above the parapet and then I received that letter, which was to say, 
thank you very much. And she invited me round to a flower. It was quite, when I walked round and I must admit her colour choices were not the same as mine, but that's not the point. <laughs> you know, we went round and I said to her, look, what do you think? And she was so excited about it. And that, that day was my why. God, do you know, Mel, you and just cannot it. underestimate the impact, do you know, that, that you and a team of people around you then that kind yes. of your decision um, kind of moved yeah. into place. But the impact that that would have had, that, that life that you have undoubtedly influenced and then the lives she's touched because as she's then gone on in her life, the people that have listened to her, orchestra, you know, the positive contribution to society, her own healing of trauma, you know, stability and housing. You know it as well as I do, but you've just kind of made me reflect on the day, which was my 16th birthday, that I moved into my first ever homeless hostel. And I was homeless on the streets at 15. And I went to the hostel and I remember a woman met me at the door and she said, I'm really sorry, but we can't, we're legally, we are not allowed to have anybody under 16 in this hostel. Please, please, please come back to me as soon as you're 16. And that was about four weeks later. And I went back on my birthday and she said, oh my gosh, we've got no rooms. We've got no rooms, but come in anyway. And I honestly, what she didn't know at that point was because of something that had happened the night before. If she hadn't have taken me in, then actually my next stop was suicide. Do you know, and she didn't know that. She had no idea whatsoever that that was where my brain was going next. And just hearing you talk about actually from behind the scenes, the fights that she would have probably had to have. Oh, yeah. The fact that you cared enough, you cared more about that person that you've given the example of than you did at that point about your career. Do you know, actually, the priority for you was getting it right and getting it right for that individual. And honestly, I can't say enough just how it just warms my heart just to hear you say that. And it it makes me quite emotional, actually, thinking about if you've gone through the last 25 years applying that methodology to every decision that you've made. Bloody hell, do you know, the impact that you've had will be tremendous, will just be everlasting. It's funny to me. I am fanatical and passionate about people having justice and having the right to social justice, to what they're entitled to. It doesn't make me a very popular person. It certainly doesn't make me very popular <laughs> with, um, you know, providers and people and other statutory agencies. I don't see that as my role. My role isn't to be that person. My role is to be there. I can't, you know, if someone went to court, they could instruct me. You know, if I was an independent barrister, they could instruct me as a barrister and male, can you come along and can you present this case for me today? But that isn't going to solve anything. That isn't going to solve anything at all, because what needs solving is at that time. And that's why I do what I do. And that's why I developed my training, because that's what it's about. It's showing people that everything has a reaction. Everything you do will cause a reaction somewhere else. And you've got to make sure that those reactions are best for that person. So many times I hear people saying, you know, oh, well, if you walk out of that tenancy, then you're going to be you're going to be intentionally homeless. How many people suffering domestic abuse have been told if you give up your tenancy, you will be found intentionally homeless? To me, that is just completely you're putting somebody you're making someone make a decision about staying in a complete amount of abuse rather than being found to be intentional, not going to be assisted by the local, I'm not going to be assisted here. You know, that's just one example, but it just, that's such a powerful example. And I remember years ago going on a training course, and again, this was an eye-opener for me. IDAS in York did a training course about domestic abuse, obviously. Gotta love IDAS. They're brilliant. And basically, we had to all put something in an envelope. We had to write something down we were embarrassed about. I never forget this. I loved it. It was one of the best training I've ever been on. I know exactly where you're going. This activity is phenomenal, isn't it? And we put it on the desk and it sat there all day. I never heard a thing that lady said to me all day. None of us did because all we were thinking about was what was in that envelope. And And whether you're going to have to share that. Exactly. Whether she was going to open it and whether she was going to say it. And at the end of the day, she said, all right, we finished the training, blah, blah. And every single person said, what what are you going to do with those envelopes? (laughs) Oh, well, you can take them back if you like. And it was something pathetic that I'd written down. I remember something, you know, it, taking a penny chew from the local shop or something like, do you know what I mean? When I was five, but I didn't want anybody to read it out. And yeah. she sat but as all We expect, out. we expect yes. service users all of the time to tell, not only tell us 
but then tell the next agency and tell the next agency and tell the next agency absolutely all of the time things that not only are they quite often yes absolutely embarrassed but quite often not for any fault of their own as well and it's just yeah I mean it's like rough sleepers they will come up to me and say to me you know Mel do I exist am I real do you want to pinch me and I'll go what do you mean do I want to pinch you well because I've been in your offices for the last two hours and I've told five different people my name, my date of birth and my national insurance number. He says, does nobody write it down? (laughs) Well, yes, they all write it down, but they're all in different sections. And so consequently, they don't communicate with each other. And and that drives me insane. One of the things I was going to say, yeah, the whole argument with the system is complicated. And I'm like you, I get absolutely frustrated about the system, feel like I want to bang my head on a brick wall quite often. But we have to, as frontline workers, move past it and deal with the individual in front of us because Absolutely. it is their life. Every single decision that we make, it's impacting their life. And of course, some of the decisions you make won't go in the, the favour of the service user. And that brings about its own kind of difficulties and complications. But equally, they will absolutely be able to trust that you've made the decision fairly. And also, it doesn't stop. I always talk to people about informed choice in bits and pieces. And I say to people, if you've committed an offence, you've beaten up your partner, for example, God forbid, you're not going on a housing register and there's no private landlord on the planet going to take you. So your housing options are, oh, that would be zero. So we have to get to another place with you. It doesn't mean that we can't help you. It just means we have to get to another place with you. But it isn't necessarily what you want. You might want to go in your own flat in social housing. Whether you're going to get it or not is another matter, but that's as a consequence of your behaviour. But we have to identify why that behaviour occurred in the first place. And this is where it comes, this is where it then stems to my, because I could talk about that subject all day. But this is where it stems back to my training, because with my training, what people would say to me was, we could really do with you on our shoulder. So if we've got to make these really difficult decisions, we could do with somebody perched on our shoulder to say, I would do this or I would do that. And yeah. I would do that. And particularly my email because, box has always been open to people. It always has. And everybody messages me with queries and bits and pieces, normally about eligibility because nobody ever understands that. I'd like to take a brief interval from talking to our wonderful guest today to tell you a little bit about training for influence. We're on a mission to help frontline services easily access quality values led training. That's why we developed our Train the Trainer program based on the book, Transform Your Training. We run four intakes a year and each applicant is selected based on their current experience level and values. Just like our methodology, we've designed the learning to be personalized, interactive, inspirational, and suitable for both new and experienced trainers to help them develop and deliver sessions either face-to-face or live online. If you're interested in applying for our 12-week blended learning qualification, then please do get in touch. All of our contact details can be found in the show notes. So with my training, that's why I've introduced Mel Can training. And that's why I've, it's not Mel Can training, it's Mel Can training, you see. That's it was ironic. Someone said to me, you can't call yourself can't because it's can. Right, okay, fair enough obviously married the wrong person clearly the wrong surname <laughs> but anyway the whole purpose of that training is that with it being modular and with it being blended learning very much like you do I mean brilliant they have got access to this video that says for five minutes five or ten minutes of me explaining how the law works with regards to how you deal with this scenario or whether you should disqualify someone from a register or whether someone's going to be eligible for housing but they can play that video and then they can make the decision. And then they can come and discuss it with you. Do you know, because we all know that in the greatest scenario, of course, we'll be able to make decisions in the moment. But actually with people, people are complicated. Situations are complicated. And the fact that you do the blended learning where they can have that information, that that legislation that is unchanging, but then they can come and talk to you about the situation. Do you know, we talked just before we hit record about the fact that it's the exact same way that we deliver the train the trainer course. 
for all of the reasons that you've identified that actually gives them that you've got that information you've got that at your fingertips when you need it available Mm -hmm. in real time but equally you've got those discussions that challenge that perception building because within decision making if we're asking people to make decisions that impact somebody's life we want them to be values-based but we want them to be informed as well absolutely absolutely equally we have to recognize all of the time don't we that we all have our own frame of reference so the Mm -hmm. fact that you offer that opportunity for them to come and then have those discussions with you and actually other people because other people's perspectives are so powerful Mm -hmm. when we are making these decisions absolutely I, i just I just think it's a phenomenal way to be able to deliver this training in a way that is needed and accessible at all times for people. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and everybody learns in a different way. So some people learn in one way. Some people like to see things. You know, people come to me. I don't show you behind me all of the reference books that I have that I refer to because I need to check to make sure I've done the decision right, etc. And somebody might not learn that way. Someone might learn by listening. Someone might learn by reading. Someone might learn by, you know, all of these things. I've read your amazing book and in your amazing book, it takes you through that type of like quizzes and you've got to give people spark, interest to want to learn. Do you see what I mean? And learn in a different way. Yeah, exactly. Say stuff to them that means stuff to them. Do you know? And again, before we hit record, we were talking about Susan Boyle, weren't we? Oh, I've stolen it. I've stolen it. I've completely stolen it. I'm so sorry. I love it. I absolutely love that because everyone that walks through the door you have no idea who you are getting when that person sits in front of you. You know, they could look like one thing and they could be completely different inside. And until you have that conversation with that person, you have no idea. The Susan Boyle analogy is amazing. And that, you know, she has the voice of an angel. But to look at her, and that's an awful thing to say, but somebody who would see her might not necessarily agree with you with regards to that first impression does that make sense because we live in this world where it's all about how people appear I remember years ago when I was a kid I live in the countryside and we have this place called Chandler's where this uh, where people go and buy farm equipment and this lad who was working there this guy walked in with string holding up his trousers and he'd got straw and bits and pieces coming and he, he completely ignored him Completely ignored him. He was walking around the showroom. He was looking at tractors and bits and pieces. Completely ignored him. And his boss walked up to him, who's my friend, and said to him, are you not going to go and talk to that customer? And he went, no. He said, oh, right, okay. So he walked over and saw the customer. The customer was a farmer who's coming to buy a £250,000 tractor. Wow. You cannot assume anything. Going back to my analogy with regards to a domestic abuse victims, you are a very brave person to disagree that someone is fleeing violence. You're a very, very brave person to say that. If someone sits in front of me and says, I'm fleeing violence, I am not going to judge them. I'm just going to say, how do I help you? What can I do? And that's the difference. And this is the thing, you know, you could have someone who's absolutely wiped out with drugs and alcohol. You might not be able to have the conversation with them at that point because they might have no idea what's going on. But just because they take that, there's a reason why they take that. I put a post on LinkedIn the other day because Robert Jenrick absolutely did my head in when he said, oh, I don't think rough sleeping is about housing. I think it's more about mental health and drugs. And I put this post on saying, how dare you? I think you'll find that drugs and mental health issues are as a consequence of rough sleeping. Because until you've done it, and I thank the Lord that that's never happened to me. All I can show is the experience I've got from working with rough sleepers. But until you've seen, you know, you're not just going to be anxious and depressed. You're terrified and you're going to do whatever you can to get through the night. So it's surely prevention is better than cure. Surely that's the way forward. You don't deal with the issue when it's right. You deal with the situation. Why is that person I do a big thing on housing advice training and they get a whole set of scenarios and they'll come in instantly and say, oh, yes, this person's going to be intentional. Or, this person won't be priority need or this person won't be this, that and the other. And I say, whoa, 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 you've gone too far. What do you mean we've gone too far? You've gone too far. What's the first question you're going to ask? Well, you know, I said, you haven't asked any questions. You've made assumptions already. What's the first question you're going to ask? The fact that they have walked into your office and are sitting there in front of you, the first question is, why are you here? I said, because although statutorily they may not be homeless, they believe that they have a housing need and you need to get to the bottom of what that housing need is and you need to find out whether there's anything you can do about it. That is housing advice. That's the key. It's why. So you ask why we do what we do. 
But one of the biggest questions we have to ask people when we're in our business is why are you sitting in front of me? Why do you need to be here? And that might be something really simple to sort out. But then again, it might be something really, really complicated that is going to cause a lot of upset, but still needs to have a resolution because every person should have a roof over their head. Absolutely. And you talk so passionately about it. It, It's very clear that no, (laughs) don't apologize. It's so clear that actually this matters to you. Do you know, you, you feel this and you gave some examples just before we hit record about the fact that actually one of the things that frustrates you is that a person can walk through the door and they can need some help from a housing advice service. And it can be a little bit of a lottery about actually what housing advisor comes out and actually how they help and how they approach that situation. And I would argue that that's exactly why they need to hear what you're saying now. That's why Melcan training is out there because you can't be everywhere. It'd be nice if we just clone you a thousand times and just (laughs) pop you everywhere, but that's not going to happen. But frontline professionals need the support and understanding of somebody like you who not only understands the legislation, but cares do you know, but gets it and but recognises that every single decision that is made impacts somebody's life and it needs to be made in a really informed but values-based way as well. So I'm thrilled that Mel Can Training is out there and that hopefully is helping people to kind of make those informed decisions and lean into those decisions a little bit because a lot of the decisions, particularly of frontline professionals, can be informed by the system and by fear that there's not enough money so we can't do this. Or if I do that, my manager is going to say, well, actually, we've there's too many people on that service now. And, you know, quite often those external pressures influence decision-making mm-hmm. and... What you sound like you're doing is going, no, that's not good enough. But it's also taking that step back as well for officers. You know, having been an officer, you know, working in this as you have as well, is taking that step back as well and seeing that, you know, sometimes it might be because officers are like chalk and cheese, but other times it's managers recognising that their staff are under huge, huge amounts of pressure, huge amounts of pressure to tackle. I mean, homelessness this year, everyone's supposed to be in. There's not supposed to be any evictions. And yet there's only a 10% reduction in homelessness. You tell me. That doesn't quite equate, does it? It doesn't equate at all, does it, really? So consequently, you've still got this whole raft of officers out there who are trying to remotely deal with all these situations, solve these problems, hostile workers and bits and pieces. Everyone is at the point of burnout. Some people are burnt out. Some people then, sometimes they just need to take a step back and be able to refocus their why. Why do I do this job? Because I want to make a difference to people's lives. But because it's one after the next, after the next, after that, which is not, you know, it appears to be like a commodity and human beings aren't commodities and they have to be dealt with as individuals. So it's again, it's not just about recognizing the type of training that I do that build people up, but it's also recognizing the things that like Tay training, amazing that type of thing, whereby it's identifying those things and giving the people support networks and types of training and messages to help them deal with, we all have bad days, don't get me wrong. And we all have people who drive us mad. And don't get me wrong, I've probably been, you know, for some of the customers on the other side, I remember the first housing officer job I had, homeless officer job, there were only three of us, three homeless officers, it wasn't that big an authority. And I remember one guy coming in and I sat down and I went through all his housing options with him. I didn't give him what he wanted to hear. You know, I said, right, these are the housing options that are available to you. You know, I'm happy to do this, that and the other, et cetera. Anyway, off he went. Next day he came in. He said, I, I don't want to see her. I want to see somebody else. <laughs> and so he saw my colleague and she said, well, looking at the notes, I can see that Mel said this, this and this. And she's told you what you need to do. So, you know, I'm afraid uh, that advice is still correct. So, right, off he went. Came in the next day and said, I don't want to see those two. I want to see you. <laughs> and saw this other girl. And she just said exactly that. She said, well, here's the notes. The advice isn't going to change. Sometimes the advice I've got to give you isn't great. Points for perseverance, though. Yeah. Oh, no, no. (laughs) every time. He said, but I just want you to give me a flat. I just want you, but we can't give you a flat because we don't have a flat. You know, we don't have the type of accommodation that you want. So I can't give you what I haven't got. And in the end, he came back and he then worked with everybody to then be able to make progress to go, et cetera. But... It's a double-edged thing. It doesn't necessarily make you, you know, it's like chalk and cheese. Some people will love it and get it. Other people really won't. They'll be going, no, 
these are the rules this is what you do this is how you do it and they will be very set in their ways they're not my tribe yeah and they're exasperated by the pressure in the system and they're exactly what you said you know you you referred to kind of the overwhelm and the pressure of homeless workers at the moment and we forget all too easily that actually our biggest resource in this country is our frontline workers mm. and quite often we're not valuing them we're not investing in them we're not supporting them and building their emotional resilience and we need to that's what series three podcast before this series was about because we need to invest in our frontline workers we need to recognize them as people and actually we need to value them in the same way we're asking them to value others so that they're capable and able because if you're thinking about one of those homeless officers and their caseload is going through the roof at the moment. They're feeling that pressure from everywhere, from the newspapers to their line managers of everybody in. And they're feeling it from their values-based perspective. They want to help end homelessness. And so they've got all of that pressure and they're working from home and they're homeschooling two children and their relationships are failing and they're not sure if their mum's got COVID and they're, do you know, all oh, of those, those things together. And that's why I love the fact that everything you talk about, you go on and on about how the response needs to be holistic, that actually there isn't one solution. Every solution has to be holistic. And that's for our housing workers as much as it's for service users that they're working with. Absolutely. And also, you know, like we were talking about before we went live with regards to this, I'm an expert in what I do. I'm happy to say I'm an expert in what I do, but I'm not an expert in benefits. I'm not an expert in social care. I'm not an expert in mental health. But there's an impression that I need to be all of those things. And, you know, this is where I think, you know, from your book and everything, this is where I get it, is that I've had 25 years of building a network up of people that I trust, that I go to and say, I've no idea whether this person will qualify. Can you help me in terms of benefits or what's the situation with regards to mental health? Or will I need a court of protection situation with regards to this person? Because I don't know, because that's not my area, you know, and that's a weight lifted as well, because I think whether it's in housing, whether it's in social care, whether it's in criminal, whatever area you work in, there's a perception that, oh, this person who's sitting in front of you, you are my officer. You are the only person who's going to, to do things for me. You need to know everything. And that's another thing. We don't need to know everything. We need to know how it fits. And we need to know the impact of, like you say, this whole holistic thing, how it will impact somewhere else down the line. You know, I'm the first to say I'll have big rows with social care sometimes on the basis that they will want me to take a customer that I don't believe has the capacity to undertake tenant responsibilities. And I don't want to set them up to fail. And it is a huge row. And they'll say, but you have the houses. And I'll say, no. I have general needs houses. They aren't ready for that yet. Yet, being the operative word, what you need to do is help me with a care plan so that then they can or put them into some form of supported accommodation where they can learn to do that. But if I were to put them in a flat in the middle of an estate with a secure tenancy, well, here we go. That's the revolving door. Round, around, 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 around we'll go. And they'll say, you know, oh, I'm homeless. Or you can't find them intentional because they haven't got the capacity, but you still want me to house them. And they had the capacity to have a general needs house when it suited social care. Do you know? So it's, yeah. And I love there how you reference your network because mm. that's so important. And that talks to the expert step in the methodology so keenly, because that is one of the reasons why Training for Influence exists. Yes. So that we can lean into our experts, you know, so that we can ask somebody else, we can get their perspective, but also they have a complete different viewpoint or complete different lens on the same question. So your social care person will be coming from their information, from what they're trying to achieve, you know, from their discussions with that individual, etc. And actually that big argument that you're talking about, that's really healthy. That's exactly what should be happening within the sector. We should each within the sphere of our expertise be able to then lean into somebody else who knows about mental health and lean into somebody else who knows about domestic abuse. And that's what I love about the community that we're building at Training for Influence is the fact that it's full of values-led people like yourself that are going, mm. hang mm. on a minute, can you tell me about this? And what if exactly. I ask you about this? And do you know the, the collaboration and the magic that that brings with the same end goal? Because you might be coming at it from a housing perspective and somebody else might be coming at it from a preventing domestic abuse perspective and somebody else might be coming at it from a mental capacity perspective. 
but actually within our community they're all coming at it from a and we want the best for the end user perspective exactly and that's the vision and that's the thing that you've got to get to and yes that healthy discussion is fantastic where i get angry is where it's coming from a budget-led perspective where people say well we haven't got the budget to do that so you need to provide them if you house them then you'll get housing benefit if we house them we've got to pay and i just scream from the top of my voice it's all public money the customer knows that the local authority has a responsibility to them they couldn't care less which bit of it has a responsibility but somebody does so one of us has got to do something (laughs) you know whatever happens somebody has got to do something but we need to do the right thing for the person and i'm afraid ultimately it all comes out of the same public purse so you know, whether they go into a tenancy fail and it all goes pear-shaped and costs thousands and thousands of pounds, and then we have thousands of pounds of them being in inappropriate temporary accommodation, just to prove a point. And then they've got those arrears that and they've got the, is another problem and for them. this poor customer, the impact on their mental health, the trauma that they experience yeah. as a consequence of this. All Self-esteem, devastated. because Exactly. Because yeah. it's, oh, we haven't got a budget. It's, you've got the budget. Oh, whatever. That really, I love having the discussions with people when it's, you know, we're talking about the individual and what's best for them. And sometimes that may well be our general needs accommodation with care. Absolutely happy to do that. Not a problem at all. But if someone's coming to me just talking about budgets, then that's where. And I get it. I get it that they are under the cosh. I get it. But we're all under the cosh. That's an irrelevant discussion. The discussion is what is best for the customer. It's always about what's best for the customer. If it's best for them, then that's what we do. If it's not best for them, then I don't care where the money comes from. Somebody's going to sort it out. You know, Mel, what's really lovely is that it's very, very clear talking to you that my memories from 15 years ago, (laughs) which were certainly that you were an absolute force to be reckoned with. (laughs) You have just proven that 15 years later, you absolutely still are that force to be reckoned with. I will always be grateful that you gave me the confidence to actually change some internal processes because we couldn't change a legislation so you gave me the confidence and the legality behind it to be able to change some internal processes so that we didn't need to keep evicting 16 and 17 year olds before the law was changed mm. and for me that's a real poignant memory and that's one of the reasons why I desperately wanted you on here talking about expert and the importance of that experience I can honestly say absolutely all the way through this podcast, you have evidenced time and time and time again why you should and are the exact right person to be delivering these courses. Now what you need to do is tell the listeners a little bit about the courses and how they can access them because it will be such a shame if after this they don't go off and book onto your courses or pass them to their line managers and such Mm. like as well. No, well, yes. I mean... As I say, I long for the days where we get back to face-to-face training because I love it. But the courses that I've developed now are literally, they're blended learning. So there's, the person goes through a journey. So my baby is my introduction to housing law. That's my favorite. That's my holistic housing course. And basically whatever section in housing somebody works in, they will get benefit from it. So they go on a four week journey with me. They go through the life cycle of a tenancy. So they're each week they get a module. The first one is about how you get a tenancy. The second one's what sort of tenancy they get. So the different types of tenure that's out there. The third one is all about how we manage people in those tenancies. What are our responsibilities? What are their responsibilities? And then the fourth bit, obviously, is how a tenancy ends and how we manage voids and bits and pieces. So it all interacts with each other throughout. And there's, I think there's 17 lessons altogether. They're all videos and they're they're all quite short videos. Hard to believe, bearing in mind I don't shut up, Um, but they are quite (laughs) short videos. But then each week, once they've been able to go through the module, each week we have a two-hour session, which then they can go through any queries they've got. If there's any new case law that's coming that I think could be relevant to them, then I share that with them. Any queries they've got, any issues. And the good thing about having the videos is that people learn at different speeds. So, you know, they might want to play the video three or four times before it's embedded, or they might just get it the first time. They might be able to play it double time. Do you know what I mean? Whereas... Other people will take longer to do it and it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. But the beauty of it as well is that they get to keep it for a bit because I can't let them keep it forever because the law changes, unfortunately. So case law guidance, everything changes. Otherwise I would. But they get to keep it for 12 months. And in that 12 month period, they can go back to it as often as they like. So 
if they need to see a customer, for example, obviously not out at the minute, but if they need to speak to a customer about an issue, like I said to you, if someone wants to assign a tenancy or, you know, we've decided we're going to live together. So I want to go from a sole tenant to a joint tenant and that they can then go and listen to the one about assignment, the five minute video about assignment. So then they can do that before they have the interview with the customer. So I'm trying to take it to the point where I am sat on their shoulder and go back to the feedback where people said we could really do with two days, not one day. And also you're kind of offering them double value because you're giving them a resource bank and you're giving them access to you. So I get frustrated with pure e-learning because I think that that one five minute video would potentially bring up five questions because every one of us is individual and actually it's hard to apply legislation to real life sometimes. But the fact that then actually you're saying, come talk to me about it, come tell me what about that video you're not sure how to apply and let me support you through that. That's where I think you're doing exactly what we state in the methodology. You know, you're meeting them where they're at Mm -hmm. and then you're making it a personalised learning experience for them. So it's, it's like they've got double benefit. They've got the resource bank whenever they need it but they've equally got that personalization, that tailored, that interaction and that expert. Which no, is- no, absolutely. And it works, you know, I mean, at the minute, it's more geared around going to organizations, if you know what I mean. So an organization if it has a team of officers who want to, you know, because historically that's what I've done. But I did used to do national training as well. And I'm hoping to be able to launch a bit like sort of say, have an intake and save. So if individuals want to do it, then I can have an intake. And then we all walk through the four weeks at the same time. And then they also get the benefit of networking and being able to see what's happening with other people in other organizations. That's a really useful resource as well, I find. So I've done the introduction to housing law. I've done one on disrepair. I cover all aspects of social housing law. So I've yet to, there are quite hefty things to put together and I'm not the most technologically minded, it has to be said. So there's still homelessness to do. There's one on housing management, antisocial behavior. There'll be one on enforcement. Can you do homelessness next? I'm trying to do, yes. Homelessness is sitting on my desk at the minute. Homelessness is the one that I'm trying to do. But homelessness is the is the biggie. But webinars haven't necessarily worked for my style of training. Everyone says it does, but for me, it doesn't. <laughs> so with some clients, what I've also done is we have like a two-hour session a month for their staff to come along. And they pick a subject that they want to talk about. So we've done eligibility for EU yeah. nationals in this period. We've done capacity in terms of capacity to undertake tenant responsibility so the understanding the differential between the two and who makes those decisions we've done it about housing advice the housing advice one's been brilliant because it's all scenarios and they do the scenarios before they come along and then we talk through the scenarios and we ask the why question and bits and pieces so I'm still continuing that type of training so you said organizations and you referred to local authorities a few times but I'm thinking that actually the people who would be suitable for your training at the moment are not only local authorities, but also housing associations. Oh, gosh, yes. Charities. Charities, definitely. Charities, housing associations. Anyone who's interested in going into social housing. Do you know what I mean? We've got all these new apprentices coming in and bits and pieces. To me, I would love my course to be somebody's induction. You know, they're getting a new role. Yes, I'm going to be a rent officer. Well, the rent officer needs to understand the implications of what they do to a homeless officer, to a housing management. A repairs officer needs to understand the ramifications of what they do in terms of that might have an impact on being able to get possession if there's disrepair. So it's for anybody who works in social housing, the introduction to housing law one is, it's for anyone who works within housing to understand the holistic approach. So to understand the, the impact. So every action that they take has a reaction somewhere down the line and what that reaction is. And not just for new members of staff, for directors and senior members of staff to see that just because you want to turn around a void in seven days might mean that the property that you let might come with repairs that need to be done, which means that you might then end up with a property that you've let in disrepair because the repairs haven't been done and you know the repair needs to be done, which with it six years down the line, when we're going for four years down the line, if we're going for possession for renters because they're not paying their rent, results in someone making a counterclaim for disrepair, which means I don't get possession. I end up having to pay compensation and it costs the business you know, if you're a registered provider, it's costing a huge amount of money to that organisation just because we had to turn that property around in seven days. Yeah. Absolutely. Rather than letting a property that was actually ready for people to move in so they could move their yeah. furniture in and they could move their without thinking, oh God, 
you know, they're going to come in in a couple of weeks and put new windows in or put a new kitchen yeah. in. Or the mould's going to ruin the furniture or, exactly. or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. Just Absolutely. let it the way it's supposed to be. So that's, that's how the my dream. brain works. Yeah, that's that how works. my brain works. And that's, I would love it for anyone who goes on that journey and learns the holistic approach to housing. Yeah, it, it's plainly obvious why you do it and also why you're the best person to do it. So um, <laughs> I, I laugh because when I was at bar school, I was known as, we had this thing called Barely Legal. I know Giles Peaker does Nearly Legal and I, I love following what he does because he's brilliant. And anyone who is interested in that side of things, his blog, Nearly Legal, is amazing and you should subscribe to it. I love it. But we had this, one of the guys at the university at bar school, he created this thing called Barely Legal and uh, this is the parting shot. My handle was Mel Rant, not Mel Cant, Mel Rant. <laughs> that was my handle. <laughs> I loved it. I so, so Mel Rant, where can our listeners find out about you and your courses? So I have a website and all of my handles, you'll find me at Mel Cant Training. So it's all one word. On Facebook, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter. Not that I use Twitter very much because I'm not very good at it. Um, Facebook, <laughs> Instagram. Fantastic. Oh, Mel, it's been so wonderful catching up with you after 15 years. Mm. And I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast and just thrilled that you're doing this and that you're getting that expert values led training out there mm. to help people because housing is so important. And you're right, you know, from a holistic nature, it's one part of what is needed. So just finish off by um saying a, a few wise words to our listeners so what what do you want to leave them with so training is everything but you gotta love what you do love what you teach because if you love what you teach it's infectious and then the people will love to learn what you do so from your perspective tay is amazing it is an amazing resource i think it's fantastic Oh, um, and it to the, well, it does. It speaks to the industry that we work in. You know, we serve the public, but we're serving the officers that serve the public. So therefore, it's making sure that that's right. But if you're going to train, yes, you need the knowledge, but you also need to have a passion for that knowledge. You need to have a passion for making sure you get that message out there. So if you love what you do, I mean, I have to like today, I put two hours aside today to catch myself up on what case law has gone on this week. Now, that's not a chore to me. I love it because I'm like, oh, what's happening? I need to see what's happening. I need to see how that applies to, to what I do deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. And then if necessary, I need to share that with my colleagues. So if you have the passion and if you love it, it is infectious. People want to learn. People want to do it. So for those of you that are trainers or want to be trainers, that's the key. This passion is everything. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mel. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast today. We really hope you found it enjoyable and useful. Please do click subscribe and then you'll be the first to know when we publish the next episode. And we'd love it if you could share this podcast with a friend or a colleague who might find the tips useful or resonate with the stories. If you'd like to find out any more about us or our wonderful guests, all the information can be found in the show notes. We really hope you have a wonderful day and please remember, be kind to yourself, it makes all the difference.